Hi, and welcome to Lake Simcoe Sessions, a podcast hosted by the Lake Simcoe Region Conservation Authority. I'm your host, Katie Biddy. Join me as I chat with the experts to learn all about how climate change is impacting us and our ecosystems right here in the Lake Simcoe Region. Our goal is to discuss how we can all work together to build a resilient future for our watershed. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Williams Treaty's First Nations. We are committed to renewing our relationships with First Nations peoples and deeply appreciate their historic connection and unwavering care for this land and water. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous support from the RBC Foundation and the Lake Simcoe Conservation Foundation. Hello and welcome to episode two of Lake Simcoe Sessions. I'm your host Katie and I'm really excited about today's episode because today we're going to be talking all about trees and forests. Now trees and forests are really a huge part of our path forward when it comes to climate change because they are both an adaptation of climate change and a mitigation of climate change. If you missed our last episode, we were talking a lot about these words, adaptations, mitigations, and basically an adaptation of climate change is something that's going to help us deal with the future weather conditions we expect to see because of climate change, whereas mitigations are things that actually prevent climate change from getting worse. So these are things that help to absorb greenhouse gases or or prevent greenhouse gas emissions. And like I said, trees are an important piece of both. They are an adaptation in the sense that they help us with shade, they help to cool our buildings. So in the future, when we're expecting to see much warmer weather conditions in the Lake Simcoe region, trees are going to be a huge piece that helps people stay cool in the, the summer months. They're also a mitigation because through photosynthesis, trees absorb a lot of carbon dioxide. And so they help to clean out some of that carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Now, today I'm going to be talking with someone who knows a lot about trees and forests in our region. I'm really excited to introduce our next guest, Phil Davis, who's going to be telling us about forestry and how it's being impacted by climate change. So hello, Phil, and welcome to Lake Simcoe Sessions. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, I'll introduce you to all of our listeners. This is Phil Davis, and he is the Manager of Forestry at Lake Simcoe Region Conservation Authority. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm great, thanks, Katie. It's exciting to be here. This is, uh, I know you mentioned in your last podcast, it was your first, and this is my first, so uh, it's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. (laughs) We've been having a lot of fun. Phil, I was hoping we could start off, um, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the listeners and just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and uh, your role in forestry. Sure. So uh, here at the Conservation Authority, I have uh, responsibility for oversight on our forestry and our green space services uh, programs. I've been with uh, the Lake Simcoe Region Conservation Authority now for uh, 15 or 16 years. So I've certainly seen a lot of change occur in the watershed in that time. And prior to that, I was with the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, spent five years there involved in their forestry program. So uh, as I like to say, on on the south side of the Moraine, so on the other side of the Oak Ridge's Moraine, and um, it was a bit of a a headspace change for me to go from a place where uh, all the rivers flow south uh, into Lake Ontario, a shared body of water with so many other watersheds, uh, to come north and be in a place where all of the watersheds flow into one receiving body, being uh, Lake Simcoe. Uh, prior to my time at, at TRCA, I was at the Essex Region Conservation Authority for, for a couple of years. That's where I went uh, straight from school. 
deep in the heart of the Carolinian zone. So an entirely different uh, landscape for me. I, I grew up here in uh, the greater Toronto area and uh, going to such a, uh, a unique forest area for Canada and such a flat landscape was, uh, was a change for me. Uh, my background from an education perspective, um, I have a master's of forest conservation from the University of Toronto. So a great program to give you a broad breadth of understanding of, of how forests, uh, woodlots, trees uh, affect uh, the lives of so many communities. Uh, so a, a really interesting uh, place to start my education and then apply that to, to conservation areas going uh, going forward. So I, I should mention as well, I'm a registered professional forester, so a member of the Ontario Professional uh, Forestry Association. Forestry is a regulated profession in Ontario. Uh, and so in that role, I have a responsibility to, uh, to look out for Ontario's forests uh, and protect the various values that they provide. Amazing. That's uh, your, your wealth of knowledge about forests then, Phil. I was hoping you'd be able to tell us just a brief uh, kind of overview of the history of forests in our region and what forests have, have looked like over the years and how they've changed. A great question. I often think that it would be absolutely amazing to, you know, if, if I could find a time machine and, and go forward or backward in time, I would be going backwards in time to see what the forests looked like here. Um, in, in, in this part of the world, uh, in and around the Lake Simcoe um, Basin, uh, there's a very long history uh, of land management, certainly going uh, well before uh, European contact, before uh, settlers arrived here in North America. Uh, First Nations and Indigenous groups have been managing the land uh, for millennia, um, making changes to the landscape, whether it's using materials for construction or making space available for growing foods and medicines. A lot of working with the land uh, in a very collaborative way to, to uh, maintain those communities. More recently, when uh, when Europeans first arrived, um, they talked about uh, wilderness, about wild areas, and saw the forests that were here to be something that needed to be tamed. The land wasn't of any use unless it had been cleared of the trees and, and turned into something else. And the forests that they would have arrived uh, here in the watershed would have been, I think, quite incredible. Uh, enormous trees, a mix of conifers and hardwoods, so trees like uh, white pine, spruce, fir, as well as hardwoods like uh, maples and oaks and, and ash and, and other things. But those trees were, were stripped from the land, um, in part for construction of, of communities, clearing land for agriculture, and, and changing the, the nature of, of, of the landscape more permanently than would have been uh, done in the past. More recently, there's been a lot of effort put into restoring the damages done by that work. And certainly our communities, uh, towns and cities sit on, on those lands. So a lot of places, trees aren't going to go back in a, in a forest or woodland perspective. But a lot of work has been done over the last hundred years to really put trees back on the landscape. And that's what we see in some of the, the stands around the watershed, whether it's the Simcoe County Forest, York Regional Forest, uh, out in Durham as well. Uh, we've got a lot of plantation lands that have taken those, those lands and put them back into trees as part of, I would say, an ongoing restoration project. More recently, uh, the practices have shifted. We understand that uh, it's more effective, more beneficial to uh, mimic natural conditions. So uh, clearing or removal of trees is done in a much more holistic way. We consider conditions on the site today, plan for future conditions, what we'd like to see, and really work to improve stands um, by very um, uh, much more selective uh, addressing the land. Look at the various conditions that are there. What trees are already in the landscape? What will we know will grow in the future? How can we improve the, the conditions um, uh, today and, and well into the future? So there's a much more judicious approach to, uh, 
to land management now. Yeah, and uh, you said planning for the future, right? And that's kind of what our podcast here is about. Um, what is the future of our watershed in regards to climate change? So we know climate change is happening. We know there's going to be about a five and a half degree increase in average mean temperatures by the 2080s. How, Phil, is that change and the changing climate going to impact the forests that we have in our region? Certainly getting to the root of the issue there, isn't it? I, I think uh, forest management uh, is a very long-term planning horizon. We often think in terms of 25-year of management plans um, in order to make decisions, and then those decisions are revisited on a, on a five-year cycle. It's always been the case that there's a variety of factors that go into uh, forest management. Uh, I, I've heard it said from some that uh, forest management isn't rocket science. It's much more complicated. Uh, I'm not a rocket scientist, so I, I can't speak to their career and how challenging things there are. But when we consider how many different factors go into making a decision uh, today for the future, it's really quite complicated because we don't know how much rain we're going to get. We don't know how windy it's going to be, what insect outbreak might there be, whether or not there might be a species at risk uh, you know, in the stand that we need to consider. Throw on top of that now the fact that trees can't move. Uh, they're very firmly rooted to the ground. They can't get up and walk and change as the temperatures change. Climate change has, has, has become and, and is a very important consideration in the decisions made today because we know that not only are conditions going to be different uh, in, a, in a more uh, traditional way in the future, but a five degree temperature change in the next 40 years really does mean that the conditions the trees we plant today or we're managing today are going to be in an entirely different environment uh, in that time. And it's something we need to, uh, as best as we can with as much information as we can make decisions today to hopefully adapt for that. Are there any new species of trees that we're expecting to start to see in our region because um, of climate change? Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, the Carolinian zone earlier. So the Carolinian zone is a composition that's a little bit more, or it's more common south of us. So especially into the northern and northeastern uh, states, uh, parts of the Carolinian zone extend into Ontario and up pretty much as far as, as Toronto. So just south of us. Uh, once we cross over the Oak Ridge's Moraine at the lower end of our watershed, you move out of that Carolinian zone. Within the Carolinian zone, there's a suite of species uh, that we can expect will have better growing conditions here. Hickories, a number of oak species, will find conditions in our watershed in the future to be quite uh, quite acceptable. I, I often think about the Lord of the Rings, the scenes with the ants where you've got these tree herders and they're walking around the forest. And of course, our trees can't get up and walk around, and ants, and, and I guess, aren't trees, but trees don't move that way. They don't get up and, and, and just move themselves. They move through various means, and of course, that's through spreading seed. Seed can spread in a very different variety of different ways. It can be dispersed by wind. Sometimes it just falls from the, you know, below the tree it's in. Animals might move them. Hickories and oaks, which are further south, um, have very heavy nuts uh, that they drop, and they're not going to make their way into the watershed on, on their own. So how those trees will begin to advance to take advantage of those new conditions is interesting to, to try and understand as well. So we've started to look at opportunities to include some of those species into the work that we're doing up here, start to salt them in and, and see if they don't take. And perhaps then by the time conditions are right in the future, we've got trees that, that uh, are producing seed to, to sustain themselves. So Phil, as someone who manages forests, how do you plan to move forest compositions that exist further south up in regards to climate change? How do you go about almost like shifting forests north? As part of our afforestation program, we're taking steps to plant trees that hopefully down the road will be more well, more suited. But again, uh, conditions exist today that we need to align with. 
So we take an approach that involves using uh, trees that have been growing from three different seed zones. So 50% of the stock we're growing will be from seeds collected here in the watershed. 25% will be in the next seed zones south where conditions are a little bit different than they are here today. And then 25% from the seed zone further south. So hopefully in time, over the lifetimes of those trees, 25, 50, 75 years, the conditions change and the ones that were from the more southern seed zone will find themselves well suited to those conditions and they, they'll be thriving. Could you give an example of like a type of tree that is pretty common in our forests right now that maybe won't be able to survive in the changing climate? Absolutely. One, one of the trees uh, that we, um, in, in some research work we did, we took a, a look at what the future conditions are going to look like for the trees that are in the watershed today. And, and one that stood out very notably, noticeably for us uh, as going to be impacted is white spruce. Uh, white spruce is a conifer species, uh, quite common in, in, in the watershed and one that we, from a restoration perspective, have used in a lot of our projects historically. When we start to look at the growing conditions that a white spruce requires, we find that in 40 years, based on those climate projection models, the ideal growing conditions for them are going to be much further north. And, and the, the area that will be best suited to them is north of Sudbury, it's north of Sault Ste. Marie. For anybody who's gotten in the car and gone on a camping trip, that's quite a drive just for the weekend let alone if you're an entire tree species. So we're going to find in, in 25 to 40 years, the conditions in our watershed are not going to be well suited for white spruce. A challenge with climate change, however, is that today white spruce will still grow. So we, may, we need to make decisions. Do we stop planting white spruce today because it won't be here in the future? Or do we plant it today for the benefits it can provide to help us get to a future state uh, in that forest? I've heard a colleague liken climate change to a rolling wave. You know the wave is coming, you're not sure how big it's going to be, and you're not entirely certain when it's going to crest, but somehow you need to plan for it. So that, that's the sort of considerations that we need to, need to make. We also find that there are species uh, which are actually going to remain successful uh, in the future. The conditions will uh, shift around them, but they'll still be well suited. And then there are other species that are actually going to find that our, our watersheds can be better suited in, in the future than, than they are today. But there are various challenges that go with, with those uh, species as well. Now, more than ever, we're seeing and feeling the effects of climate change. As a Lake Simcoe watershed resident, I'm thankful for the generous support of the RBC Foundation to help us each learn a little bit more about how we can take actions against climate change starting right here at home. So I just wanted to bring it back a bit because I've heard you say adaptations and mitigations. And in our last episode, we talked a lot about how we need to adapt to climate change. So we need to find ways to, you know, just deal with the changing uh, conditions, but we also need to mitigate climate change. And I think forests and trees in general are the perfect example of something that does both, right? Because they help us to adapt in the sense that they um, give us shade and absorb water to help prevent flooding, but then they also mitigate through their carbon sequestration. I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit more about the role that trees um, and urban forests might play in, in our urban environments in our watershed. So people who live in the city having a tree on their boulevard, like what, uh, how is that helpful to both adapt to and mitigate climate change? I find um, being a forester in this day and age can be both exciting and a little bit nerve wracking, uh, often because trees really are so remarkable in the things that they do. It can be a little bit stressful to feel that you have a level of, of responsibility, a role in, in, in uh, ensuring uh, their success in the future. 
In the, in the urban environment, trees, as you mentioned, uh, do, a, do a wonderful job at, at helping to uh, mitigate the impacts of climate change. So trees properly planted around buildings can provide shade to help with summer cooling and trees uh, that lose their leaves and in the right spot when they lose them in the winter allow more, more sun to hit a building so you, you keep things warm. So there's, there's direct benefits there as it relates to energy costs as well as energy use. So looking for opportunities to, to put trees in the right place in an urban environment will certainly lend benefits. There are studies that, that demonstrate that trees outside of the window of a hospital, providing that uh, greener, softer environment can help re with recovery times for, for illness. Uh, and of course, getting out of the out of the sun in the park, you know, you're playing a, a game in the park with, with the family and finding a shady tree to get underneath is always welcome respite. So they provide a lot of benefits that way. That's going to be helpful in the future when we have more extreme heat days, right? Uh, parks with trees are going to be more comfortable places to be. Absolutely. I, I should mention my daughter actually does, says she doesn't trust trees um, because they are so shady. But uh, <laughs> but I, I, there, and there are we have it, folks. There's our first uh, Phil dad joke. <laughs> With uh, with trees, though, in urban environments, though, it's a very stressful place to grow. You can imagine there's so much going on in an urban environment. You mentioned paved surfaces. Paved surfaces are really tough on roots, but trees need to, to absorb the nutrients and moisture from the ground. They often share that space, uh, especially on roadsides with what's going on un underground. The other things we need for life, water, uh, gas lines, telephone lines, uh, electricity. So there's a lot of challenging growing spaces. Snow plows, cars, bicycles take a, a, a real hard time on, on trees. So there's, it's a tough environment to grow in, um, but certainly the benefits outweigh them. And a lot of work is being done, uh, particularly with our municipal uh, partners in the watershed, to find ways to establish growing conditions for trees so that they will be successful uh, and they will lend those benefits that uh, we'll need to consider into the future to address uh, what are urban heat islands. So those areas that are absorbing uh, solar radiation warming up and causing the sort of challenges we see uh, in our communities uh, with a change in climate. Right. And I've heard that term before, urban urban heat island. And the idea there, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's that in urban centers where there's not a lot of trees and there's not a lot of um, natural spaces, the heat is kind of funneled in and it it is kind of like a cycle. It gets hotter and hotter. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think we can all uh, you know imagine what it's like walking through a park. Perhaps you're Walking through a conservation area in the forest is quite cool, even on a hot sunny day. Whereas if you find yourself on, on a main street in a town, things are much warmer. So the, the canopy cover that trees provide helps to, to reduce the, those, uh, those heat impacts, uh, which again have direct translation into costs for cooling uh, buildings and, and making uh, spaces comfortable for us to, to live in. As we start to see more hot periods, prolonged hot spells during the warm season with climate change, it's going to be much more important that we see the, the, the added benefit the trees can provide for uh, of shading those facilities. And Phil, when it comes to carbon sequestration, are some trees or some types of forests better at doing that than others of actually absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and harnessing it and holding on to it? A lot of work is done around modeling carbon uptake by trees. So different species will uptake carbon at different rates, but in the same manner, trees and, and woodlands at different ages sequester carbon at different rates. So at a, a younger stand, as the trees are rapidly growing, will be taking in lots of carbon, building their building wood, uh, building their branches and, and structures. And then as trees get older, they start to slow down from a, an uptake perspective, uh, but they're storing significantly more carbon. So a large tree has, has taken in that carbon over its lifetime and, and held on to it. The next stage then is, as trees die is a place where we actually can start to see carbon released from the trees as the wood decomposes. 
but it's also a spa where we can see effectively permanent storage of carbon by using wood in construction projects. So if you imagine a two by four that's come from a tree, the tree's been removed, but that wood is storing carbon as part of as part of the construction. So whether you've got wood furniture, wood houses, other wood buildings, and there's a, a real trend towards large buildings, uh, once again, being built out of wood, those, those are storing the carbon. So trees provide that benefit uh, all the way through. It is important that we leave trees on the ground to, to rot down back into the soil and they are releasing carbon, but of course they're, they're improving soil conditions and, and growing conditions for the next forest. And that's part of the consideration made when, when forest management is done. Trees are coming out for, for the various purposes that they'll be used, but materials left in, in, the, in the ground or on the forest floor quite purposely to, to make sure we're promoting that, that future forest. And those trees now that are sequestering more carbon as they are growing. So it's, a, it's an interesting cycle. Yeah, I've heard the quote sometimes a, a dead tree or a, or a log is more alive than a, a living tree. And that's because it's created a habitat for so many different insects and invertebrates and all of that stuff. So if you roll over a dead tree, you're going to find like tons of things making their um, their home underneath it. Absolutely. Phil, I was wondering, do you have a favorite tree? And I don't necessarily mean like species of tree. Like, is there one tree that you've come across in your life that has just spoken to you for whatever reason. Like, I feel like everyone has that tree that they think of um, when they're asked this question. And does one stand out for you that holds a lot of memory? It, it, it does. And actually uh, the species and the tree itself are, are, are one and the same. I, I had the benefit uh, years ago to have the most spectacular job one could have. I worked in Killarney Provincial Park for a company uh, renting canoes and people would come in and say, you have the best job in the world. And I would say, yes, I absolutely, I know I do. It's where I first started to recognize the difference between trees. Uh, and of course, you know, I, had a, I had a professor in university who said he only knew two, two types of trees. There were Christmas trees and other trees. And I, I don't mean that difference, but I remember being in, in a forest and, and hearing the difference in the way the wind sounds as it blows through a stand. So the, the rustling of leaves versus wind blowing through needles are two different things. And for me, uh, the sound of wind through white pine is, is remarkable. Um, so white pine is my favorite species and there's a white pine on, on, on an island in, uh, in Clarny Provincial Park at the place that I used to work, that's enormous. And I can't help, but every time I see that tree and I get to go back annually, I can't help but walk past that tree and just put my hand on it because it, it, it has such stature. It's got remarkable history, uh, and its presence is, is really quite remarkable. So, uh, absolutely. I I've got my favorite tree. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, I think most people do. There's just one tree that they've seen in their life that just sort of sticks with them as they as they continue on through their life. And Phil, the, I think the last question I just wanted to to end off with and to leave our listeners with is I was wondering if you would share what gives you hope about the future of our, our planet, right? So we, you know, our projections for climate change can be quite alarming, um, knowing that our, our planet is going to be is going to warm and our region is going to warm as well. What gives you hope about um, our future? I really am heartened by the level of awareness and concern that youth have about climate change. And I think that you know, there can often be a perspective that it, it's youthful optimism without, without uh, you know, perhaps life experience behind it. Um, but I think that there's so much information being shared. The messages uh, being shared with, with kids um, are being well received. They're, they're understanding them. They, they can see the impacts of, of actions today and what it means for the future. And I, I really am quite heartened by, by the action we see, whether it's very public, you know, actions being taken or even just comments and, and conversations that I might have with, with uh, my kids or with their friends are really, 
really, really heartening, as I said, to, to think that they, they understand that the change needs to be made today and they're, they're prepared. They're not stuck in their old ways like some of us uh, and they're prepared to make changes that, that are going to have benefits for us in the future. So uh, I, th I think I'd have to say that it's the, uh, the, the I'll be optimistic, the enthusiasm of youth uh, and, and understanding that we can, we can address this if, if we really work at it. Amazing. I totally agree. That's the page I'm on as well, because I get to work with youth so often. And I agree. There's just an openness that the next generation has to make changes and and build a positive future for, for our region, but also for our, our globe. So I completely agree that that is <laughs> the youth are our path, path forward. Well, fantastic, Phil. Thank you for filling us in on all of the uh, of the information about forestry and uh, climate change in our region. I really appreciate you being here. I know I learned a ton, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Thanks very much. As I mentioned off the top, uh, it, uh, you know, my first podcast has so been, in, in, and I always love talking about trees. So thanks very much. I'm just a little disappointed it's going to be audio only because I did get all spruced up for it, but I guess that's just the way these things go. So thank you. <laughs> Oh, slow clap for that dad joke, Phil. <laughs> Finish it off strong. That's fantastic. Thanks, Phil. And we'll talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Phil Davis as much as I did today. Uh, I found it to be a real treat talking to him. Sorry. Phil put me in the mood to, to make a bad tree pun, so I, I couldn't hold back. <laughs> but really, I'm just, I find it so interesting to consider that 40, 50, 60 years down the road, the forests in our region will have changed and they will have adapted to meet the new conditions caused by climate change. Now, my challenge for you today is I want you to learn more about a tree. So I want you to go out into your neighborhood, maybe your local conservation area, and find the tree that speaks to you. You know, walk around, find the one. There will be one, I can promise you, that for whatever reason calls your name. And when you find it, I want you to try to identify it. So there are two ways that you can do this. I'll share both these ways in the show notes. One is you can use our dichotomous key. And this dichotomous key has most of the common tree species in our region. It's pretty easy to do. And all you have to do is answer a series of questions about the tree and it will lead you to the tree species. Now, the second option is you can use a new app called Seek by iNaturalist to help you identify your tree. Seek is a really amazing tool, and I definitely recommend downloading it if you've got a smartphone. The way that it works is it uses photo recognition software to match a photo that you've taken on your own phone to tons of other photos they have in their database. So when it comes to identifying a tree, what you can do is take a photo of maybe a healthy leaf of the tree you're identifying, and it's gonna match it to other photos in its database of that same species. It'll then tell you what species of tree you're looking at. So I'll share the link to that app in the show notes as well. And yeah, my challenge for you is to just go out and identify a new type of tree. Now you might be wondering why I'm asking you to do this, to go out and identify a tree. Um, and the reason really is because I think that by doing this, you'll become part of a community of people who know a little bit more about trees and take notice of trees. It's so easy because trees are quite ordinary in our region to not really like consider them as special or appreciate them for all the values and all the benefits that they do for humans. So by taking the time to identify a tree and, and connect with it, I'm hoping that we can build a larger community of people who care for and respect for trees. 
That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining me on Lake Simcoe Sessions. I hope that you'll come back next time because next time we're going to be talking about the namesake of our podcast. We're actually going to be talking about Lake Simcoe. And I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Brian Ginn, who is a limnologist for Lake Simcoe. Now, a limnologist is basically a lake doctor. It's somebody who studies and monitors the health of the lake. So he's going to be telling us some of those changes that we've seen in Lake Simcoe already as far as climate change goes, and a little bit about what we can expect in Lake Simcoe in the future. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous support from the RBC Foundation and the Lake Simcoe Conservation Foundation.